All right, so we are live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Chat and Learn here with Power to Fly. I'm super excited for today's hour. My name is Mariella, and you know, I don't want to waste any time talking about myself or anything that's going on in the world. We all know the crazy things that are going on in the world. And really what I want to do today for this hour is to take our time, have our guest speaker uh, acknowledge and respond to a lot of your questions that you've submitted offline and really get us into being in the present moment. So with that said, I just want to go over some housekeeping rules. Um, I've muted everyone upon entrance just to avoid any background noise, but feel free. I cannot stress enough. We want to hear from you. Turn your, your, your cameras on. We believe in visibility. Um, you know, take yourself off of mute whenever you, you have something to say. Um, if you see your question appear on the screen and you want to dive in deeper, feel free to do so. If this wasn't your question and it brings up a dream that you had last night or you really want to dig in deeper, uh, feel free to write in the chat box or to take yourselves off of mute. Um, if you have something sensitive that you'd like to bring up, feel free to message me privately um, and I will flag that to our guest speaker so that we keep your, your suggestion uh, anonymous. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say is that this is being recorded. So I know we live in multitask central world these days, but I would really, really uh, value your, your presence. Uh, and if you can participate, that would be great. I'm gonna sound like a broken record by the end of this chat, just to invite you off of mute and to drop in the chat box. Um, and you have, su have submitted some beautiful questions offline. We're gonna get to that in just a minute, but I really want to dive into meeting Jade. I got a chance to speak with her offline and I'm super excited to hear more uh, about her experience, her journey, um, and to hear her response to these beautiful questions that you all have submitted offline. So Jade, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to know about Power to Fly and what are you excited to share with us today? Man, that's already a loaded question. You know, um, in a nutshell these days, I feel like we're all sort of reinventing on the spot. So we're going to have to write new resumes <laughs> in the next couple of weeks or so because we've learned so much about ourselves um, in a really powerful way. I think the easiest way to describe my life and how I got to where I am right now is it's marked by chronic reinvention. Um, you see the picture here with me sitting on the piano. That was the childhood dream was simply to be a classical concert pianist. And I'm one of the lucky ones, right, who has gotten to live that out. Um, I have had a successful career. I'm still a Yamaha artist and uh, still have the pleasure of being able to perform in incredible spaces. But, you know, we had a couple of detours and you'll hear me talk about detours later. And I think one of the most powerful ones was doing something um, that came very naturally to me in a setting that it wasn't very natural for, which is basically I started speaking in the middle of a classical music concert. And that radically changed the course of everything. People literally started booking me. They would say, get that piano girl who talks, right? So it was like suddenly speaking made me this hot commodity. Speaking itself took on a career of its own. Uh, and then eventually I decided I didn't want to have to choose. I saw one of your questions about being multiphasic and, and how do we kind of deal with that. And so I eventually made, I really made a life out of not choosing, refusing to choose and understanding how do each of these facets, the musician in me, um, the minister in me, the comedian in me, the speaker in me, how can I bring them all together for one big experience? And that experiment ended up being uh, my calling card. And so today I'm honored to be um, a sought after keynote speaker. And I have the pleasure of traveling the world and speaking to some of the world's most um, superlative companies, most incredible brands. And they bring me in mostly to talk on creativity, transformation, leadership, and reinvention. 
Um, and so you guys had me at the title, like power to fly. It's like, I don't care what it is. Sign me up. Just tell them. Yes, let's do it. I don't need to know anything else. Um, and so I'm always looking for places to have courageous conversations. And if this is not the era for conversations that prick a little bit, but on the other side lead to incredible breakthrough, I don't know what else is. So um, as we started campaigning, if you didn't know, I'm running as an independent candidate for president of the United States. People keep going like the PTA, is it like they, they like literally two months in, we were still, we had to figure out like on the website, are we not saying president big enough? We have changed the font size of the word president so many times, it's not even funny. Um, and we'll get to that in here, but today I am, I'm coming to you as an independent candidate for president. And um, it seems wild and random to so many, but if we were to track my path, it's one of those things that you go, oh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and so I'll explain all of that later, but I am running uh, as a candidate for president of the US. And the real theme here is impact. Uh, the real theme here is when you see a void, you're mandated to step into it. That's just how I've always lived my life. And so that's how we've gotten to this point right here. Uh, but I'm really seated right next to my piano. The piano is still my baby. It is the thing that has always opened doors and got me in rooms. And then I get to choose what kind of music I want to make. So I'll end there for introductions, and I'm sure we'll break a lot of that down as we go on. Wow, what a beautiful introduction. And I'm so honored to host this chat today. Um, like I said, I'm excited to learn more about you. I had an opportunity to learn about you offline, and I was not, uh, I could see that you were running to, you know, for, to be the next president of the United States. So that was not confusing for me. I hope that everyone can, you know, honor that as well. Um, we already changed the font, Mariella. But by the time you okay. start, we have the big thought. So you got it right perfect. on point. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So how beautiful your journey so far. I love that you also have the, you know, it looks like your piano is like coming alive behind you with the black and white. So you, you clearly know how to have your vision uh, surround you. And, and I, I, I honor that. I see that in you. Um, so great. You all have submitted some great questions offline. We are going to take this one by one. I see that some of you have already written in the chat box. If you're just joining us, I'm going to sound like a broken record by the end of this chat, but I really, really want you all to participate. You know, this is not meant to be something uh, where someone is speaking at you. Um, we want to hear your voice. Your voice is important. So like I said, I've muted everyone upon entrance, but at any point, feel free to take yourselves off of mute um, and feel free to use the chat box. You are taking this hour out of your day. So participate, please. Um, if you haven't already, drop in the chat box where you're calling from. So Jade is calling from Houston. I'm in Buenos Aires. Um, I see that some of you all have written as well. Uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, Atlanta, Awesome. We've got, uh, where else here? Drop in the chat where you're calling from. Another Houston, Texas. Perfect. New York, London. Awesome. Great. So Buenos Aires again, Florida, Ohio. Thank you all for writing in the chat. I really appreciate that. So let's keep this up. All right. So let's move on to the first question here. Um, and again, I can't stress enough. We want to hear from you. If this was your question, feel free to add more in the chat box or take yourselves off of mute. Um, this is going to be a great, great hour. So thank you all in advance for, for participating. All right. So Jade, let's go for this first question. How did the skills you developed as a concert pianist help influence and develop you into the transformational speaker and business leader you are today? Uh, you know, the obvious answer to that is as a classical musician, you literally spend hours 
every day perfecting one piece of music, sometimes one page. So on average, when I was in college, I was practicing anywhere from eight to 10 hours. Um, an easy day, a light day was five to seven hours a day. Um, and the, the, the type of detail, and I started playing very late in the world of classical music. I didn't start till I was eight years old, which is like over the hill uh, when you're talking about Mozart, Beethoven, and Chopin. So I had a lot of catching up to do. The advantage I had was the emotional sensitivity to the music. So before I ever went to school and learned how you were supposed to play Russian music or Rachmaninoff or the difference between Mozart and Beethoven, I instinctively understood it. So where I excelled was I was, I had an old soul where classical music was concerned and emotionally I related. So even as a young girl, I'd play concerts and there were adults who would say, I'm feeling something I haven't felt before, or I have goosebumps. And I remember being young and not really understanding what that was. Um, at the same time, I remember some of the criticism that came my way when I was doing competitions was, she's too into the music, she's too expressive. I moved way too much, like Prokofiev, like got my head going, you know, like that, it was classical music, but I felt it, I felt it so tangibly. And that is what later distinguished me in my career is that there were audiences who said, I used to think classical music was boring or I used to think it was stuffy, but now I feel it differently. Um, and so I think in terms of translating to leadership, that same sort of awareness of the audience and what the audience needs. Um, so, you know, if you're really lucky, you want to never play a piece of music the same way two times in a row. And the, the way that you vary the music is you're responding to what the audience is requiring of you. Uh, so if you feel like you're just like in speaking, right? If you feel like your audience is losing, you, you change course, you tell a joke, you do something. And so the same thing in music is like, oh, I'm not supposed to speed up here, but I think I will because the audience needs it. Um, and, and so I would always respond to that. Now in leadership, and especially as a speaker, I'm in rooms where I'm coming into a lot of preconceived notions, right? Especially as a black female um, speaker, a black female concert pianist. And I love playing with those expectations. So I love doing exactly the opposite of what people are expecting me to do. Um, and I think also in leadership, you need that. Uh, I also think that my career changed when I stopped obsessing over how perfectly I could play, how many notes I missed and how many memory slips I had. And I started focusing on what journey does the audience need to be taken on that they don't even know yet. Changed everything. So even in leadership now, I'm teaching other leaders to not just be concerned about your legacy, but can you lead down through to the legacy of the people that you serve? That creates a sort of loyalty um, that cannot be created simply from being a great disciplinarian or um, a great strategic thinker. It's when people really believe you care about their outcomes beyond the bottom line, beyond the profit, it uh, marries them to you in a much different way and the results you're able to yield are different. And when you don't meet the goal, the atmosphere that you're able to have and maintain is much different than if the only focus was on the bottom line. So that kind of um, back and forth and understanding the audience, the customization for an audience also translates uh, into how I lead and into how I lead uh, my team at, at, in my company and how I lead audiences as well. How beautiful. We chatted a little offline about uh, a topic that I love to speak about, which is emotional intelligence. And of course, if you're an artist, 
you got to bring emotional intelligence, in my opinion, first, so that you can connect with whatever it is that you're trying to present. So I love that you honor that in the work that you do and, and right. you bring that into your leadership roles as well. Um, I got some people writing in the chat here that you're super inspiring. I'm loving what you're saying. It's so true. Awesome. So keep it going, y'all. Let's, let's keep this chat um, live. I see that a lot of you have just joined as well. So if you're just joining us, you know, please feel free to take yourself off of mute at any time. I'm going to sound like a broken record. There's no shame. I want to hear everything that Jade has to say. But as she says, it's important to bring the audience in. And if you're calling here live, we want to hear your voice. So with that said, let's move on to the next question. And if this is your question, feel free to share your voice. So what is your process when you choose to reinvent yourself? For example, do you dive deep into researching the role and learning the skills required for the role, or do you jump into opportunities to learn the skills on the job? This is a great okay. question. Wow. Okay. Listen, so I am a leap before you look person. I'm a deep diver. Um, I've gained the confidence over the years to know that even when I leap unexpectedly, I usually land on my feet. So because of that, I leap even quicker now, right? So now I have, I've uh, shrunk the time between the thought uh, and the decision-making, I'm able to, to leap a lot quicker. So my process for reinvention first uh, is usually I'm, I'm getting better at listening to what's happening around me. So the decision to run for office for years now, my family and I have been talking about it for years, two or three years. And uh, we honestly thought it was going to be something that happened much farther down the road. Uh, but this is where I'm talking about that decision-making <laughs> shrinking. What I've been teaching people and what I've been perfecting myself is to pay attention to what really is going on around you. Because a lot of times your plans do not sync up with the reality of what's happening. Your plans are on point in sense of the content, but the timeline is almost always off. Um, and that's because our timeline we usually make based on our comfort level. So if you're a master planner like me, you could plan this out. Well, I'll be senator for two years and I'll do just what Obama did and then I'll do this. And if I can turn Texas purple and da 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 da, da and I can plan it out, the plan was beautiful. Um, but I'm running as an independent for a reason. And the independent does not fit into the plan. And what we realized was there were two things that I felt were coming. I felt like we were coming into a season where we were going to be at an all-time low where race relations was concerned. I thought it was gonna simply be sparked by the current political climate. I had no idea George Floyd was gonna happen. I also sensed that we were coming into a season where the economic disparities and disparities in our education uh, system and disparities because of systemic injustices would come to a head and be exacerbated. I had no idea COVID-19 was gonna do what it did. But I made the decision to officially run on January 1st. COVID-19 kind of officially hit end of February, right after I made my announcement. George Floyd happened only recently at the end of May. And those served as, served as validation for what we were sensing. I sensed that those two things, the exacerbation and the disparities and the race relations issue were the reason I needed to submit my voice into the void at this time. And so now that we see this happening, it feels like validation. Because as we look at some of our other options, many people are saying they can't imagine those options shepherding us through this moment. Um, and so I know we're gonna talk about qualifications later uh, because on the surface you would think, well, you're not a politician, why are you doing this? But the reinvention requires us to actually put away the resume and to look at what the resume of life has been. When you've stepped into the void, what has been the space that you've been filling 
and what has been the outcome. And when you see a certain track record there, to me, you owe it to the world now to step into the next void, even if it's much bigger and much scarier. So reinvention to me is dictated by what is society asking of us? Society is very different from people. We'll get to that later. What is society asking of us? Um, and then what qualifications do you have? And then make the leap without checking to see if you have all the equipment. Just make the leap and trust that the talents and the skills are there and you'll be able to collect the weaponry <laughs> as you go on. I love that. I love that you're highlighting, I mean, the way that I'm interpreting this is, has a lot to do with intuition as well, which I feel like oh, yeah. we have uh, just over time, I mean, generational, you know, accumulation of just numbing our intuition and, and that also keeping people afraid uh, from making leaps of faith that could, you know, have this really beautiful outcome in the end. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm happy that you are, you know, one of few who are still listening and in touch with your intuition to be able to take these leaps of faith and to, you know, kind of sense the climate of change and, and be uh, courageous enough to share your voice in, in those moments. So well, and you know, you, you have to back that up. Let, let me say, you know, as uh, we talked a little bit off, uh, you know, line, as people were coming on about being a rule follower. Um, listen, you've still got to be prepared, right? And you've still got to execute in excellence. And so those were skills that also came from my years as a concert pianist. So when I say take that leap, it's not that we're recommending you leap, um, without there being thought to how, once you're <laughs> in the midst of that free fall, <laughs> you're gonna be ready for the landing. So that's backed now, that leap has been backed by, you can imagine the amount of um, content I'm consuming right now. I have 50 different people who brief me on every issue imaginable, but I'm combining everything they bring to the table with, with intuition. Um, I am a person of faith, so I spend a lot of time in prayer I'm also a person of observation, but preparation for me is key. And so now I get to use the skills that I've honed as a communicator um, to apply it to this job that I'm applying for. Uh, so there is that balance, right? You don't get to just leap and go, whatever happens, right? That, that's one kind of theory. For me, you leap and you go, now what do I have to do? Where do I dig in? How do I deep dive? Um, and so, but, but for me, the, the consumption of the content and the process of getting ready is very exhilarating for me. So I love that. Uh, and again, I think that comes from the hours of practice um, for that one concert that's going to be over like that, but you put in 50, 60 hours just to learn that one piece, you know? So I'm excited by the preparation too, but I think you have to leap and then trust that you'll know how to prepare. Yes, yes, I love that. Thank you for clarifying that. And I specifically said that so that people would be able to know that you got to back it up with some fire. And you know, you know, you can't just, you know, uh, do things at the at the drop of a dime without being prepared, especially as we see the climate of the world is ready to throw, you know, lots of different things our way. So I'm happy that you are prepared. for this. And I will I but can you go back to that slide? Because that picture? Oh, my gosh. So so what you can't see now with my very sensible hair, this is sensible hair for me. Usually I match my reinventions with a new hair style. Um, and, and, so, and my hair honestly changes used to about every two weeks. I have an incredible stylist. And so we get a new random style for every engagement. So you might see me in one week with very different style. If you were to scour my uh, 
personal Facebook or my business Facebook, you will see them. Um, and my last hair was very similar to this picture with the shaved sides. And so we, we grew that back a little bit because we knew already what I was doing was radical enough. People aren't quite ready for the purple and the, uh, <laughs> the shaved side. So the hardest part about this run has been keeping the same hairstyle. And I haven't kept it all the way. My hair was like this long a couple of days ago. And now it's not the magic of, of, of that's black girl magic there for those of you who are watching it. Um, but so that has been the hardest part of doing this is because you will to some degree have to conform in a way that allows people to digest what it is you're bringing to the table. And so that things that are you normally may have to be, and I say this very carefully because I really believe in not dimming your shine at all and really bringing all of yourself to the table. But we also have to be mindful of, of distraction. And so for me, as I see this picture, I do mourn a bit, you know, my shaved sides and, and my color and everything. But I just, I love that she was on that screen. I have to say that. <laughs> yes, yes. Someone here has written in the comment, oh my gosh, please, we absolutely need a purple haired president. So after you have people who- election, After the election, that's what we do. We get in there first, right? <laughs> then the Mohawks come back in the hair. And they're gonna say, what just happened? <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I love that. I love that you're also highlighting, you know, don't dim your light, but there is a certain balance. I'm a fan of balance as well. I, I hear that in a lot of what you're saying. Don't go extreme. You're going to push people away. Don't try, you know, to polarize. We've already gotten into this mess. We're being so polarized. And how can we walk that middle line of finding balance, but also in a very, you know, a brilliant way where we can still shine our light. So that's right. That's right. Awesome. Great. All right, let's move on to this next question. Does anyone have anything they want to say? I know I'm taking up a lot of talk time. Uh, I'm just really enamored with our guest speaker and all the things that she's saying. So I'll, I'll hold for a light pause to see if anyone wants to take themselves off of mute or drop in the chat box. Do you have any advice for kind of walking that line between not necessarily dimming your light, but like you'd said, there's certain things that people are ready for and certain things that they aren't. Um, is there a way to kind of thread that needle where you're being true to yourself and how, you know, being your most authentic self, but also not, you know, shooting yourself in the foot by creating a situation where you are having to, you know, maybe push more uphill than you would have if you were to, you know, like, like you said, like switch back from purple hair. Um, is there, is there anything kind of, you know, rules to remember while you're doing that so that you're not going too much one way or the other? At the end of the day, you've still got to feel absolutely like yourself. So if any of what we're calling balance makes you feel smaller or um, boxed in, then that's too much to the other way. So I still feel like myself. You know, and a couple of days ago, I had a little more highlights in here and the hair was longer. Um, and I keep at least one side short because that I'm really a short haired girl at heart. So as long as I have this, you know, if you see me doing this, it's like me remembering who I am, right? Um, and so I keep that in there. That's our, that's our secret signal now. So if you ever see me on the news that I'm doing this, right? Um, I think the balance is you've still got to feel that you're able, that your output still has all of you in it. So the thing I always say is make sure that you're bringing all of yourself to every single table, every single time. If you are having to completely shape shift in different settings, to me, something's wrong with that. We adjust, right? There's a certain way that I talk um, in, in black culture, we talk about code switching a lot, right? So when I go home to Charleston, South Carolina, it's an island influenced area, we speak Geechee. Uh, but if I got on stage in the corporate setting and started speaking Geechee, you would not even be able to understand me, 
let alone relate uh, and learn from me. So that's an easy one uh, to pick. But I also make sure that there are certain themes and qualities and characteristics that I take with me everywhere. So if I'm wearing a suit, um, which I had to go buy a lot of because I just don't wear your, your typical uh, corporate suit, um, I'm still making sure that my voice is never dimmed, right? So my voice always shows up the same way. The accent might be a little different, <laughs> but what I'm saying is always the same. The way that I treat people always shows up the same way. And then the way that I present physically in terms of style will always be slightly out of the box from what people are expecting. So even if I'm in a standard suit, you better believe the shoes are going to be saying something. Do you hear what I'm saying? Um, the jewelry, there's, there's, I'm never gonna show up to a space and you should never show up to a space where people don't recognize you. They should still recognize you and you're not defined by, of course, the clothes and the hair. Uh, and I think in terms of distraction, if you know that what you're presenting is already radical enough, then you can tone down um, the other things, the outward appearance, but make sure that the voice is always at fever pitch. I hope that helps. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I have, sorry, Mary Lilla, I have a quick question as well. And also, oh my gosh, you're like my spirit animal listening <laughs> to you speak. Uh, you just, you just say so many things that resonate with me and that, oh my gosh, it's just really awesome to get to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how, how this approach that you are so unapologetically and so authentically yourself, it, it's not always easy to come by, especially in politics. And so how do you feel that has impacted the way you've either presented yourself while still maintaining all of that authenticity and, you know, um, for lack of a better word, competing with yeah. everyone in this arena. Yeah. Uh, you know, it has been the consistent successful point of action. So we knew, first of all, running as an independent was a very intentional choice. Um, I have been courted before by people from both parties, both major parties. Um, I don't hear my voice in either party strongly. Um, and I had a suspicion that other people felt politically homeless, like I did. So we knew the last thing I needed to do was look like anybody else that had run before. We knew that was why do it, right? So we knew we had the luxury. <laughs> we, we, in, sort of, in some ways, we have nothing to lose, right? We already were starting out with no political support. We were starting out with no key political advisors. And you can't believe the stuff that happens behind the scenes versus what's actually happening and what you're seeing in front. So we knew that the risk would have been in trying to look like those other guys more so than in just being myself. And so what's been powerful is that what people are saying is, wait a minute, you don't sound like a politician. Like even the reporters, and we'll get done with these interviews. And, um, and it's baffling people in a good way. So what's wonderful is people who've been looking for something that is not politics as usual are gravitating. If they can find me, right? If we can bust out, we'll talk about that later. But once they find me, they go, oh my gosh, you're my spirit animal. This is exactly how I feel. And I don't know what your political affiliation is. And to me, that is proof, that is proof that we are bigger than these political boxes we've been stuffing ourselves in, that this is just about humans trying to serve other humans. And if we keep it at that, we mostly don't agree on how to serve each other. We disagree on issues 
And it's funny because those issues we disagree on are rarely actually the things that are affecting our everyday life, but they are the things that make for great political argument. Um, and so we've been, I, I feel forced into fear-based kind of decision-making. And so people seeing me be fearless um, also frees them in determining how they're gonna vote this year. And that's been the most humbling thing is to hear people say, I was literally going to opt out this year. I was done. I was not even going to vote and now I am. Or others who said, I've never been registered and now I'm going to register to vote. And to be able to receive them without condemnation, without making them feel stupid or irresponsible because they hadn't voted before now, but saying, wow, you're seeing hope, you're, fine. you're seeing a solution, and it creates uh, something in you that wants to take action. So we think that that authenticity um, has been key and will be even more crucial the closer we get to November. Thank Absolutely. you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Nicole. I appreciate that. Yeah, let, get us out of the circus. You know, I, <laughs> the circus uh, these days, it's, you know, it, it lacks authenticity and it's all showy showy. And so I think that's probably why a lot of people are, are, are receiving, um, you know, what you're, what you're sharing is because, you know, there's been a lack of that for, for too much time. Actually, so. Okay, let's move on to this next question. So we've got about half an hour left. You see time goes by quickly. So let's run through these next couple of questions. And with that said, if anyone's on the line and wants to like, you know, get their question you know, now, please drop in a chat box or take yourselves off of mute. We wanna hear from you. Okay, so what are the top three mindset shifts people need to have in order to successfully reinvent themselves? Okay, so one of the biggest things that I, I think people honestly live and die, unfortunately, with ever feeling like they discovered their purpose. And I think that's because we always attach purpose to something, position, job, title. So I always say this everywhere I go, your purpose is not the thing you do. It is the thing that happens in others when you do what you do. That one thing right there, that what, let me say it again, because you need it, you need it. Your purpose is not the thing you do. It is the thing that happens in others when you do what you do. When I got that, that is what unlocked me from the piano. Because I always thought I was cheating on the piano, right? If I did anything else, because I trained my whole life to play this beast. Should I really be speaking? Can I really be a minister? Why the heck am I writing a book? I'm a pianist. But when I realized, oh, it's not to play the piano. It's what's happening in the audience when I play, when I speak, when I write, when I joke, right? Uh, when I minister. And so that allowed me, uh, the kid, the stereotypical American, over-involved American kid, right? I played three sports, seven different instruments. I was in the band. But, you know, I was that kid. And I've been told my whole life, you have to pick, you have to pick. And I just felt like, no, I don't want to pick. I can't pick. Now I understand you pick based on purpose. So if I can write and still activate people into becoming their biggest, boldest self, I have permission to write. If I can minister and activate people in that way, I get permission. If I can activate a nation into becoming its biggest, boldest self, rediscovering its truest identity, which is to serve and leave a legacy of service behind, I get to run for president too. So that thing is you get that purpose statement down and, and the way to find it is you go back and interview some of your friends and say, what happens when I'm around? What happens when I speak? And, and be prepared, it might not always be good, right? But you're listening for the good stuff and you wanna find out what that chronic effect is. The effect is your purpose. 
So some of you are an amazing listeners and when people are listened to by you, they feel this or they have this outcome. That's one of the number one things you can do is find out what that effect is. And then you look for places to have that effect. Uh, the second thing, detours are not detours. They are divine interventions. I look at all the things that I lost. I was first runner up at Miss America. People go, that's amazing. No, it's not. It's awful. You're the last person standing. And when they do that drum roll thing, you're the lady who gets the hook while the other girl gets crowned. It's awful. But it's incredible because for me that year, um, the lady who won, who I love, Heather, Heather French Henry, um, won Miss America. My platform was youth suicide prevention. A couple months before the Miss America pageant at the time, the Columbine massacre happened years ago. That was like one of the first major school shootings. Suddenly, youth violence, suicide prevention, mental health awareness were the hot button issues. Even though I wasn't Miss America, I traveled and spoke more than Miss America, got to testify in front of Congress. Had I won Miss America, Miss America actually had some internal scandal issues. She was not able to speak for the first four to six months of being Miss America. Had I won, I would have been silenced and siloed by losing an entire other world opened up to me where I became an advocate in mental health awareness. You'll see me releasing platforms and policies about those issues. It wasn't a detour. It was a divine intervention. I didn't get into Juilliard. Still pissed about that. But if I'd gotten into Juilliard, I would have been practicing for 16 hours a day. And there was no way you would have convinced me that as a Juilliard grad, I was supposed to be doing anything other than playing Mozart, Beethoven, and Chopin all day long. That's all I would have accepted. But because I went to other schools that fostered that well-roundedness, here I am in front of you today. So your detours are actually divine interventions. Lastly, do not ask permission to disrupt. Man will never give you permission to disrupt his paradigms. And I don't mean that in a gender sense. I mean man as in human. Humans are never gonna say, please come here, challenge our status quo. Hi, we're looking for change. They will never do that. So I encourage you that if you feel in your soul, it is time to disrupt this a thing, to dismantle a system, I dare you to dive in. The permission will never come in the front, but after you dive in, there'll be people who will say, thank God you are doing this. We are so grateful you are here. We've been praying for someone like you to arise. This is what we're hearing on the road. Had I asked, someone said, a reporter said, did you do a, um, what do you call the, uh, the, the committee you send out when you're the exploratory committee. He said, did you do an exploratory committee to run for president? And I said, no. And he said, why? I said, because everybody would have told me no and not to do it. So I didn't ask, I didn't explore um, other people's fears. Come on, that's a, give me an amen on that one. I didn't explore other people's fears. Instead, we explored what was happening around us and said, does this moment, would this moment benefit from us adding to the texture? And if so, then we felt like we had to say yes. So don't ask permission to disrupt. Uh, discover that your purpose is really the effect you have on others. And remember that your detours are actually divine interventions. Yes. I am like, <laughs> I'm on you right now, but I'm like doing some like hallelujah over here. Yeah. And I think folks are writing this box. 
Um, Ali has written, I love how you've managed to see the other side of why things weren't meant to work out the way you wanted them to. Yes, I agree. What did you want to comment on? Maybe some people are in those situations right now, especially with COVID, you know, and things aren't working out. Can you just kind of talk more about this divine intervention moment? Yeah, <laughs> that divine intervention now becomes something me and my team look for. It's, it sounds so backwards. We get excited about rejection. <laughs> so we say rejection is really divine protection protecting you from the devastation of the wrong yes. And I think women, especially as we are such hard workers and we've usually done 10 times more than what's needed to go after the thing we're going after. So when we don't get it, we're like devastated. How, how dare they not choose me for this? And now we get excited. So women that I've coached, we look at things and go, okay, had that been a yes, what environment would you have been in? Would you, been at, would you have been allowed to bring all of yourself to the table? Was there actually room for elevation? And usually we find out the answer was no. So now we get excited in the no. So when, we, when the people, when we're getting the radio silence, I told my team back in May, um, I could sense things were about to open up. The world was about to start finding us, but also be prepared. That means the haters are gonna find you too. And on like clockwork, May 1st, it's like someone sent an army of haters <laughs> and they just came from everywhere, but we were prepared for that. Um, so we don't then see that as discouragement. That means stop. We say that a worthy opponent is worthy to be opposed. So the more opposition, it actually ends up validating why we're here. So when the haters come, we always tell them, listen, you're welcome to stay because you're actually boosting our algorithms here on social media. So stick around, but know that nothing you say is going to cause us to leave the space. You're only making us stay longer. So, uh, you know, just that flip, we know we, we call it reframing, right? Uh, kind of in the corporate world and um, in, the, in the social space world. But we look at it as everything that we plan, we assume it will be disrupted. We still make the plan, but we release the outcome and we look for the divine interruption. We look for it. And so when it comes, we go, aha, that's the thing we never could have planned on our own. That must be the way to go. That must be the direction to go in. And I'll tell you what, there's joy and peace that comes from that. That is beyond explanation, absolutely beyond explanation. Yes, <laughs> the chat box is blowing up here. So I'm going to give, if anyone wants to take themselves off of mute, now's your time to shine. Yeah. Okay, I'm taking myself off of mute again because uh, <laughs> I just have another question. Uh, I'm, I'm loving this. This, oh, you're so amazing. Okay, so um, when you're talking about purpose, I, I think that is an amazing way to look about look at it. And it's like an aha moment, right? Yeah. Probably for you when you realize like, that's not what purpose is. This is what purpose is. Yeah. And so how do you gauge that? How do you gauge your effect in others? Is it the way they talk to you about a certain thing? Is it the things they ask you about? Or are you asking them? Um, how did you decide that? Couple of ways you can, you can do it. Um, when I'm coaching one-on-one, -on -one, because we're, we are working for speed, uh, I give the assignment of literally asking people, asking the closest people to you, asking people who you work with, who you own, you have kind of a more distant acquaintance and you'll start to see themes emerge. So for me, the other way that I would do it is what was I hearing after the concert, after the speaking engagement? So we, we have these long lines of people who would stand there sometimes for hours so that we can hug or do whatever we're gonna do. And there was a recurring theme and it was, I feel like I can do anything now, right? So we kept hearing that. We also kept hearing um, uh, people who were creative in their past lives, but had put down their music or their art or something for their corporate career. 
And they were now feeling like, oh my gosh, that I was being set up to bring that creativity with me. So we'll hear that people have been sitting on something and they now had permission to, to either engage in that again for their own personal piece or because it would add to the workspace they were in. Um, and then lastly, there were a lot of people who were relating to me because I was talking about bringing all of themselves to every single table. So there were people who were saying, I didn't know I had permission to be all of me. So over time, I listen to all of that and then I decide, okay, well, that's what I must offer from here on out. So now all of my presentations have those things in it and I can be guaranteed of my effect. Now that means even if it's a slow day and I don't feel as energetic, even if it's a day where I'm missing more notes than usual, I can be released of the stress and the pressure that came from performing and know that as long as I can make sure people feel like they can do anything, uh, that they can bring all of themselves to the table, that they can resurrect parts of themselves they had put down, I was good. And, but, but, and let me be honest though, before when type A perfectionist was only worried about the missed notes, I could miss one note or have one memory slip in a two hour concert experience and the whole thing was down the drain for me. And I would leave feeling absolutely depressed, demoralized, uh, wondering what is my worth? If I can't even get through a Beethoven sonata without a memory slip, what's my purpose? So you can see how that opposite of thing will beat you down and destroy what you have to offer. Um, but when I pulled real purpose out of that, then that purpose can ride out in different vehicles. So observation is gonna be key to figuring out what your effect is, but you're not gonna to have to look that hard. You're gonna hear the same things come back at you and it's gonna make you feel so excited um, and, and relieved that it's not about bottom lines and how much profit you made this month. It's just not, it's like, how did you make people feel and what did they do because of how you make them feel? feel. And that, that's, um, we still get emails from people and this is, the, <laughs> this is the scary part. People will email and say, I heard you speak three years ago. And I went right out of there and I quit my job and I launched this business. And I'm like, oh my God, like what? But you know, they're excited. They're, and and they, they did it and it works, thank God. You know, like, so people will really take action off of what you release in them. And so that's the responsibility, Mariella, that comes with, like I was saying, that preparation and that excellence because people are listening. And they've been waiting for that permission. So when you give it to them, they're going to move. So make sure you're not BSing them. You're not recycling somebody else's motivation. Make sure you're telling them stuff that's tried and true that you've lived. Uh, because if you, if you deliver it correctly, they're going to move on. Yes, I cannot. I'm throwing digital confetti right now. I hope it's <laughs> invisible, but I know you feel it. Um, I have a follow-up question for you because... I love one of the things that you're talking about with, um, as far as, I mean, and I know that we can all relate on this call and whoever is watching this video, that our economy today is all about the numbers and the data and, you know, that bottom line that you said, if you, you know, when, when you're performing and you just, you know, you miss a beat, that turns what was amazing for everyone else and what could have been amazing for you and you become depressed and you become, you know, worried about the numbers and the data. How can we kind of shift our, our, I mean, I don't want to make it a, a, such a big question as how can we shift our economy, but like, how can we balance it to where, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only about numbers and money and it's actually about, you know, a little more ethical and with a little more emotional intelligence. What do you have to say on that? Listen, you know, the way that we talk about the economy is how do you make it a more humane economy where more people have access to opportunity? I can't guarantee outcomes. There's nothing I can do to guarantee an outcome. 
right? I mean, you, you know that by looking at lottery winners, right? You, you can throw a couple of million their way and they could still lose it all, right? Because so many other things weren't in place. But I feel like what I can do and what leadership and government should do is be the entity that provides access and at the very least doesn't suppress you, oppress you, or allow uh, systemic injustices to exist. So the way that I looked at it, like for instance, we were trying to decide whether or not to reopen. And we were presented again with a false choice, economy or saving lives. Well, to me, the economy is the people. And so my biggest concern was that if we didn't reopen powerfully um, and with lots of forethought that I took still needed at least two more months before we were going to open powerfully, you would risk losing more people and risk another shutdown, which would be harder to stomach. Um, we already had captive people captive, right? Waiting for instruction. And once we reopened, you know, it's like letting a genie out of a bottle. It's gonna be really hard to get us to shut down again. It's like, I'm not doing that again. We're moving forward, that's it. So I think the equivalency now is understanding that, for instance, corporations are people. So no need to demonize corporations because you got people who are holding up those corporations. So let's figure out how do we have corporations be more accountable to its people? If the corporation is the representation of the American dream, that means that that dream was built on the backs of the workers in that corporation. So let's not separate the two, they are the same. Now, how do we serve both, right? And so uh, I think it's, it's really a nuance now, Mariella, in conversation. Uh, for instance, we talk about people who are impoverished. If we're saying always, well, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they don't want to be better and they are okay with being lazy and we're not really examining what the situation is, that then keeps us at a stalemate that doesn't serve anyone. Uh, in Houston, we had people coming up in the food bank line here. People were coming to get food and they were driving up in Mercedes Benzes. So what you had now was people who had not had a certain life experience suddenly understanding very tangibly what it meant to be in need, what it meant to not be able to rectify your own circumstance, what it meant like to suddenly have to release all pride and partake of a government service or a community service. That was a powerful switch up. And that's gonna forever change those people's perspective on what it means to be poor, not just during COVID, but every day of the year. So I think it's a new conversation now that disallows demonization. Um, I think demonization is used so that, again, we keep people polarized. But conversation and discussion now must be opened up and it must be broader. Um, and I think that's what people are craving because those are the conversations we actually have in our own homes. Those are the conversations we have at lunch and over dinner. Most of us don't speak in that. You're either pro this or anti that way with the people you love. You just say, well, listen, this is the, my experience. This is what I'm feeling. And someone says, you know, I feel that way too. Even though we're on two other sides politically, we actually have this in common. So I think uh, in terms of the economy or whether we're looking at education or whether you're looking at, do we need specific programs for black Americans in the US? If we can look at it now as, okay, what do people need in order to live more powerfully and more prosperously? What will that require? Forget what color the skin is, forget what political affiliation they have, how do we serve people? So I think the conversation comes back to reminding us that at the end of the day, we're here to uh, solve the problems that humans have so that we can all live uh, much better lives.
I cannot agree enough. 1000%. Actually, I've, I have carried this theory over the years and then especially right before COVID hit, um, like this theory just kind of went up to the surface for me. It's, so I'm an artist and I believe we're all born creative beings. And I believe that just some of us kind of take a detour, just like you said, and people are like, well, my past life, I was this creative person, or they kind of have been told by educators that are overworked and underpaid that they should not do this creative thing. And they, you know, so um, I, I've always felt that it is the role, as James Baldwin says, it's the moral responsibility of the artist to uh, invite us to, to, to look at ourselves to open a different dialogue so that we aren't, you know, polarized and so that we can march forward together essentially and evolve together. So I love, it makes a lot of sense that an artist as yourself is wanting to be this voice that we haven't heard before. And in my opinion, that has been lacking for too long. So thank you for that, Jade. I really appreciate thank you. you. Thank you. So we've got about 10 minutes left. I know that we are on fire right now. I see someone else wanted to throw some digital confetti here in the chat box. Um, <laughs> so I'm just gonna hold for a light pause if anyone has anything that they wanna reflect on or any questions that they want brought up before we move on to this question on the screen. Uh, I'll hold for a light pause to see. All right, we have in the chat box, Jade Rocks, awesome, okay. <laughs> Thanks, David. Great, okay, so then if no one has anything to say, I'll just um, move on to this question here. So how to be great at dealing with people with a fixed mindset and create win-win situations more often? This is a great follow-up question for everything you just spoke uh, about. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're on the campaign trail now and uh, we're working with lots of different personality types. And it wasn't until I saw this question that I actually got insight into one of the issues we've been having. And I was like, oh, that person has a fixed mindset. Um, and we are a growth mindset team. <laughs> We're all chameleons who reinvented quite a few times. Um, and, and many of us in terms of uh, emotional intelligences are futurist and we're relational. And so here's the, the big discovery I made on our last trip was it is a disaster to try to get anyone to change or become someone different in the middle of crisis, in the middle of emergency situations. You're, you're better served as the leader to adjust around what that fixation is. And then outside of that, now that we're back home and we'll decompress and have a meeting, then you can deal with where you might need that person to consider some growth. Um, and so what I'm trying to get better at is understanding what is the fixation around um, and how can we place them in a position to be powerful even in that fixed mindset for the time being because usually that person does have a very incredible skill that they're offering at the moment uh, but we ran into a lot of trouble trying to change change each other um, and we couldn't we, we'd have time to think about changing um, and and the changing always comes in the forms of these come to Jesus meetings, which I, I personally don't have a lot of um, tolerance for those long, let's talk about how we're feeling meetings, though they're difficult for me. That's, so that's a point of growth for me. Um, and so I think the, the, key, the key aspect now is being able to accept what people do bring to the table and really work around that in the time, in the time frame that you have. And then later, when you have time for exploration and you're not up against deadlines, you can deal with what may need to be a point of growth. And then I would suggest offering one point of growth, not an entire lobotomy, right? 
what's the one thing that this person could just improve on or expand on that would radically change the atmosphere and the culture in which we're operating. That's what I got for that one. Uh, and that does flow into the other ones about multiphasic um, uh, and then kind of how do we deal with resumes where you're trying to position yourselves differently too, actually. Yes, yes. So hopefully we'll get to those. We've got about seven minutes left. I don't want you to feel rushed though. And I do want to leave time for anyone who's live to, to vocalize as well. So um, if this is your question that you see on, oh, hi, big truck passed by. I don't know if you could hear it. Um, distracted me a little bit. But uh, if this is your question and you want to, you know, uh, have, our, uh, have Jade dive in deeper, please feel free to do so. Um, so where do you find inspiration for your purpose, the reason for your reinvention, and what advice would you give to others who are looking for this inspiration? So I talked about this a little bit with the purpose statement, right? That you're watching for your effect, you're looking for places where that effect is needed. Um, what advice would I give to others who are looking for that? So I think as you begin to look now, you're, we talked about how you find that purpose, but now I think the key is to look for places to offer it. And I say that, you know, for those of us who are multifaceted, um, multi-talented, it's not that you have to choose which thing to do, but you get to choose which vehicle your purpose will ride itself out in, in this season. So it does require some decision-making, right? You think about it, you can't physically be in multiple vehicles, but you can take a ride in each vehicle at a different time. And so for me, there was a, there was a season where I was riding out my purpose in the lane of ministry. I was a women's minister at, at my church, as well as one of the um, overall speaking pastors there. And there was a season that it was the priority focus, but there was another season where the music was the priority focus. Um, but I wrote a book on prayer, right? So there was another lane still operating, but the main driving vehicle um, had a specific direction to go into. So I think now that we've talked about finding purpose, I think the key now will be for you to look around and see where you can offer that effect and dare to offer it. Um, without asking for permission to do so. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so let, let's move into this question here. Maybe this will be our last question and then you can take us out with some food for thought and let us know how we can be in touch with you after we end this chat. So how do you become, yes, you, you spoke about this a little more, uh, a little earlier, but feel free to dive in uh, more here. So how do you become multifaceted in many different disciplines without feeling overwhelmed or like you aren't focusing on one thing at a time, especially now where, you know, being a multitasker is this like goal for a lot of people, which I find to be very distracting. <laughs> um, I would love to hear you speak about that. Well, you know, I was devastated a couple of years ago when I heard the research that says being multi, um, multitasking was literally not possible. I'm like, what do you mean? I've been doing it my whole life. But the science says that your brain does not multitask. Uh, but that really what you're doing is kind of going between one thing or the other. So once I had to settle with that scientific evidence, what I realized is that I personally need change. Um, I look forward to it. I cause it if it doesn't exist. And so for me, this is a much easier question than those who may not like to, like you said, feel distracted or taken off course. So I think the key <laughs> is always to find out what phases are required, whatever the project is, right? What, what are the phases required? And then be honest about which phases you would function at your, at your highest level in. So I think where we get overwhelmed is when we're taking on all the phases, especially the ones that we weren't built for. Um, so if you're not the detail person, but you insist on being in that detailed phase, you are setting yourself up for annoyance, frustration, and overwhelm. 
So I feel like knowing the phases then allows us to figure out which phases, execution, delivery, and strategy are mine. I can do those three things mostly simultaneously. Um, and they don't require a lot of brain space or energy in terms of delivery. Um, so I can take on other phases, but that detail and that logistics and the mundane planning makes me sick to my stomach. So I now always delegate those areas. Uh, so you're st still multitasking, but you're, you're picking which task you're really good at. And I think there's no shame in that. And I think the final product ends up being much better. And they say that when, when you become a parent, I am not a parent. Uh, but when you become a parent that, you know, there's no choice, you have to learn how to juggle and do a lot of different things at once. So I would love to hear more. I know I saw your, your baby girl come in offline. Um, is there any, you know, do you have any words of encouragement right now for our parents, our working parents? Um, and then also feel free to use these last two minutes to just wrap this chat up and uh, send us home with some food for thought. Let us know how we can stay in touch with you and support you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you all again for, for listening in. I am a proud mommy. I'm married to my high school sweetheart from Charleston. Um, we've, been, we've been together since we were 15 years old. So we have literally grown up together and we have a 12 year old son and a six year old daughter. Um, and <clears throat> what I think has been powerful for me, I, I could write a whole book on just raising, even just raising my son, my complete opposite in many ways. I think the biggest, change for me was when I finally told my family what I needed from them versus pretending like I could do everything and serve them at 100% while I was also serving these other creative babies. And I think the best advice I can give is to be honest with your spouse about what it is that you need and about who it is you really are. And especially if you are a very strong presenting personality, it's hard for people to understand where you need support and so the bad cycle is to pretend like you don't need it, be pissed at them for not offering it, right? And then they come and go, what's wrong? Nothing, I've got it. And that cycle continues and continues, right? And so, and I also tell my kids, so today, here's what mommy's got to really be focused on. If you give me this front part of the day and don't interrupt, you let me do this. When I'm done, here's how we'll be together. And what it does is it frees them of wondering, does mommy care? Why is she in there all day? But I have to set them up with those expectations. So the same way we do it with teams and we do it with clients, I think we have to manage expectations in our home so that we can be free um, to love them powerfully and not feel guilt when we're doing something else. Um, I'll end by saying, first of all, thank you in advance for the time and the space, Mariella. Um, this has been probably one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Uh, running for any office, but especially as president. And I think the hardest challenge we've run up against is a complete shutout uh, where the media is concerned. They're not going to give us permission to disrupt uh, the two-party system or the status quo. So we've had to really work around that by just having conversations like these with real people. And our ulterior motive is so that when you do see my face on CNN or Fox or whatever, you're able to say, we spent time with her. We know her heart and whether or not wherever the vote lands is really not the, the issue for us. It's that we wanted to make sure there were people who could vouch um, for my heart and, and, and really feel like they had a heart-based connection. And so we're thankful for these moments. If you're interested in learning more about the campaign, where I stand on all the issues, you're gonna go to operationrestoration2020.com. That same handle, Operation Restoration 2020, is where you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram. And do watch uh, as we start to 
kind of emerge now into the mainstream. And if you like what we're saying, if you believe in the, the vision that we have for the nation, we would love for you to just join on with us in spreading the word, letting people know we're here because people can't make a new decision if they don't know they have another option. So thank you all so much for your time. Thank you, Mariella, for having me. Yes, thank you, Jade. I wish you this best of luck. And I know that you're going to, you know, do your thing and I'm not worried about you. So I'm definitely going to spread the word. Uh, and thank you everyone for, for sharing time with us today. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank yeah. you.